Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So, I have exciting news. Yes. I finished Atomic Kotlin. Woohoo! And I know I thought I finished it at the beginning of September, but then we spent three more months going over and doing way more stuff than we imagined. It's always the last bit that's the hardest. It huh? is, but it's way better now. So yeah. I'm glad we did it, and I am proud of the result. And for those that don't know, Atomic Kotlin is the newest book that Bruce has been writing with uh, Svetlana. Svetlana Isakova. Yes. Uh, who is one of, she was on the, the Kotlin compiler team, and she is now a, uh, well, developer advocate, developer advocate yeah. yeah, for JetBrains for yeah. Kotlin. So she goes around and talks about Kotlin. Talks about Kotlin. So I just printed out your book yep. from the PDF. Thanks for sending yep. me the PDF. And it is thick. It's You put a lot of work into this We book. did, and we took a lot of stuff out. Wow. Yeah, we did. Man, there was something I worked on for three months, I think. And then at the end, we decided, I'm, I'm planning on putting it up as a blog post. It was It had just gotten too big and involved, and it was kind of like a you know, a small book to itself. It was on object-oriented design. Huh. And uh, in Kotlin in particular, and there was this elaborate example with robots running through mazes. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of, anyway, that'll be a blog post eventually. Nice. And um, just this morning, I put the the print version of the book and the cover into um, LeanPub. No, not no. into LeanPub. From okay. LeanPub, they they actually generated the layout for the you know book to be printed. Okay, and um, and then where goes it goes to Ingram Spark. Okay, so and all we right now it's just waiting for the them to come back and say uh, this will work or this won't work, and okay, and then we'll do a an actual press run if you haven't i mean you know we'll do one or two yeah and if you oh, haven't I'm, gotten too I'm far for sure then uh then that would be the good one to mark up so pretty soon i'll be able to buy it on amazon and then give you a, a one-star review amazon or your local bookstore yeah and it has to it has to be very crotchety it has to be very That's crotchety right. sarcastic yeah. one-star review. yeah i can't believe he used a var yeah <laughs> unbelievable we there are a few places we did it seemed like there was no way I, I'm sure I'm sure I'm wrong, but at the time it seemed like there was no way out but to use a bar. Yeah. But mostly it's vowels. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, set a good example. There's there is a version of Stockholm syndrome for mutability. You mean where you just everything you you feel like a huge failure if you use a bar? Yeah. I think I'm there. I feel like it's you know, it's like wow, my brain isn't working right if I have to use a bar. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. True. Um, so, okay. So pretty soon people will be able to buy it and, uh, and that's great for I'm people that are in getting January. into Kotlin and, yeah. uh, and I'm sure I'll learn some things from it. I'm going to start reading through my printed, my self-printed copy soon. Oh, and people will be able to buy digital versions probably right now, right now. I mean, uh, yeah, the lean pub version is up there right now. Nice. So, yeah, it, it, so atomickotlin.com. That's right. That'll take you everything that has the, um, examples that you can compile the exercises and solutions that you can work through after each atom. Nice. And uh, oh, tell people sample. about atoms. So the, the whole name atomic, the name, Kotlin. yeah, the atomic and preceding this was atomic Scala, which I did with Diane Marsh. And um, the idea was that we wanted to, you know, like an atom, which at the time was thought to be the smallest unit of matter. The idea of this is each of these, little tiny chapters are so small we couldn't break them down any further so that it's a single concept that's the goal sometimes it's some things later in the book have gotten bigger because they're more complicated and they need more coverage but we still try and they're very heavy atoms sometimes yes they're heavy yes they're yeah. well and they're later in the periodic table that's right you know in the yeah. analogy of the book yeah they're they're further down so um yeah. So one of your philosophies for for your authoring of these atomic books has been to not have forward references as much as possible. Every once in a while, if we're talking about something, we realize, oh, this could leave you hanging. 
we do say sometime later we will talk about you know a follow-on to this topic but we don't say you know of course you could use a generic here when we haven't introduced generics right. yet. that just seems yeah so as much as possible no forward references yeah but the, i'm sure there are things that are just kind of almost naturally circular in their definitions and so that you you can't avoid it in a circular um, you can pretty much it, you have to create you have to craft your examples carefully so that you're just using stuff from you know i mean you can write hello world without except in java without knowing a lot of things about the language so yeah, this correct. is kind of like that you have to know a function um, and, well, you have to know function calls. Function you don't call, have to yeah. know what functions are. Yeah, yeah. So you just you so know. you have to before hello world. You have to introduce function calls. Yeah, and we usually comments and yeah, and well, I mean, you have to define a main, so you do actually have to know a little bit about yeah defining a function. I guess you could do a KTS. And not, uh, you know, the Kotlin script. Oh. And then you wouldn't even need the fun main. I think when we got started. It's pretty new, like the KTS. Yeah, I don't like, think Kotlin scripting was, I think it was still a gleam in somebody's yeah, eye yeah. at the time. Whereas I think Scala scripting now is to the point where you could write a Scala script and somebody could put it inside of a main and have it work. Yeah. Or maybe it just looks the same. Yeah. Um, well, it's super exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah I think this will be really useful. Three and a half for years of work. Three and a half years. I know. Dang. Long time. Dang. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll you'll uh, you know make more than the ten cents an hour that you know that's typical for books. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. It'll probably be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Do you look so. at it as a hobby or or uh, or more and more? Yeah. More and more, and I think I would rather look at it that way because when you're doing it for satisfaction's sake, it, it, you know, it tells you how to make decisions. It's like, is this fun? If it's not fun, why are you doing it? Yeah. That kind of thing. So, um, and that kind of follows into, uh, you and I and Bill Frazier are starting work like almost immediately just because of random timing things on, Atomic Scala 3. That's right. So it was Scala 3, the Scala 3 language coming out Yep. with some pretty significant changes to the language. We're like, hey, it'd be cool to update the Atomic Scala book to Scala 3 and use all the fancy significant white space and, you know, all the other fun features in Scala 3. Right. Um, and a lot of the work that's gone into the Atomic Kotlin book. Yeah. That's improved things over... Scala book, I think. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's, there's so much overlap between mm -hmm. Scala and Kotlin now, yeah. like Scala three has extension methods like Kotlin has. And, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, I think we'll... that is the point of the book is that it'd be fun. Yeah. It's a hobby. It is. Well, I mean, cause you know, there's not a huge number of Scala programmers, but yeah but maybe we can help the ones, the people who are interested. Yeah. Cause it'll also be a very careful step-by-step -step and atomics, atomics, reasonably introductory. Yeah. You know, it maybe not the language I would choose for a first time programmer, but who knows? Yeah. Um, you know, if I, I guess I've learned so many times people had come up to me and said that they had learned to program from thinking in Java, which was not the point at all yeah. of that book. Huh. And so I realized, well, no matter what you do, people are going to try and use it to learn to program. So yeah. might as well at least make it Try to support that. accessible with them in mind at some point. Well, one of the nice things about the Atomic Scala, Atomic Kotlin, the way that you structured them was that like, like for me, I don't know a hundred percent of the Kotlin language. I don't know what percentage I know. Cause I don't know what I don't know, but I think that I could easily skip, let's say the first 20 atoms or something like that before I got to something that I'm like, Oh, this is something I don't really know 
much about. And so the way that you've structured it into atoms makes it so that no matter what level you're at, you should be able to find a place to start and, and move forward from there. Well, plus we have these two summary atoms for people who are experienced. So if you're experienced, you can just go to summary one and it kind of, here are all the features that we covered in that section of the book. And then you go to summary two and, the, and then you're up to speed for moving forward atom by atom. So that way you don't have to nice. like guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then if there's a feature you're curious about, you can generally go to the table of contents and you can find the topic and go to it. So nice. Yeah. Which is really nice because Markdown and LeanPub don't do indexes. I mean, uh, Oh, like generated index. Yeah, they don't. Well, yeah, yeah it's like there, yeah, there's, there's really no way to make indexes with them. Huh. So, um, the size of the atoms means that you can sort of say, well, the atoms are chapters are essentially the index. Yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, something like it. So, and they're so small that, uh, yeah, they work. Yeah. Anyway, that's the hope. I'm hoping that people won't miss an index too much. Some people will. Yeah. And you've got all the code samples for atomic Kotlin up on GitHub GitHub somewhere. So Mm -hmm. yeah, with extensive, careful instructions on how to install them and run them. Nice. Yeah. And then the uh, exercises and solutions are also available that way. Nice. They have the examples as well. So you could just do the exercises and solutions and you get the examples, but anyway, this was our way of testing everything and making sure all the examples were correct. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's one of the things that you've put a lot of work into in your books that makes a big difference is that you make sure that your code that is in the book actually compiles Mm -hmm. and produces the expected output that you have listed in the book, which is uh, really nice for the reader. Cause I definitely come across a lot of programming books and tutorials where it's like, there's this thing just doesn't even work. Like, right. Did you test this thing? No. Well, they did once. Yeah. That's right. And then they, yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It makes it a lot easier to, and, and as new versions of Scholar were coming out, we would just plug it in. And if there was anything that caused problems, we'd know immediately and fix yeah. it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very reassuring because I don't want to put something out that, because I've been frustrated by the same thing. Yeah. You just, you know, you could almost open a book anywhere and look at an example and go, that that isn't right. You know, that won't even compile. Yeah, yeah. I think exactly. at least they should yeah. be able to compile. Yeah, I started doing this back in, with thinking in C It was the first place that I did huh. it. And I wrote uh, an extractor in C that would extract it and make, you know, make files and, you know, the whole thing. And then um, that took me a couple of weeks to write that in C. Huh. And then I started using Python and I wrote it in, well, of course, I had had the experience of writing it once, which is a big advantage, but I rewrote the whole thing in half a day. So, yeah. 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 So that was, yeah. but, but it would, you know, make sure that the code worked and that was something I can't give up at this point. Yeah. It's always got to work. All your readers appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the format of the Atomic Kotlin book was uh, I didn't get this when I printed it myself because I printed it just in black and white. Uh, but you have nice color coding on the co- on the code samples too, and that's done through the Markdown code blocks or whatever or something, right? Uh, yes, the LeanPub does the color syntax high- highlighting, and I'm I can't remember what it's using, but um, it allows us, you know, once they change it so that we can have more choice. Right now, there's no choice over what the syntax highlighting looks like. Oh, right, and we. You know, once once we're able to do that, um, we may choose something else and put up a new version that we think is nicer. Yeah. Now, have you considered a dark mode for your code samples? <laughs> dark mode is like you know, everybody's like dark mode, dark mode, dark mode. GitHub just launched dark dark mode for GitHub. I think when I think some people just code, really care a lot about dark mode. I, I, I think, I mean, at least my VS code configuration is dark mode. And I don't know if I said it that way, if it came that way. I think it's the default. In is the it VS now? Code. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's nice. I, I, it's, it does seem easier to read, but the, I wouldn't know. It's weird. Cause there's different situations where when somebody's doing 
a screencast or a presentation, I find dark mode, dark mode no, really hard. You don't want and, to use it there. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen people do that and you realize, especially if you're sitting towards the back of the room or whatever, and you get two things always happen. They don't make it big enough yeah. and you're going, okay, this tells me a lot about you that you're not thinking about the audience because yeah. you always want, you want to get all the extra peripheral stuff off the screen. You yeah. want to make it, it so big that it almost wraps. Yeah. And because everybody will appreciate that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Speaker pro tip. If you're going to put code on a screen, walk to the back of the room and make sure it looks good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do that. And also, yeah, just make sure it looks good. Because if you if you insist on doing it in dark mode because you like dark mode and you go, go to the back of the room and look at it, you may change your mind because yeah. it can doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't work so well no. in a on that in that scenario in yeah. that scenario yeah i guess if you aren't reading on a kindle or or ebook then you can like the default on kindle is dark mode or light mode i forget but you can toggle it yeah i haven't tried it on mine mine is the light background okay. you know it yeah. looks like a piece of paper yeah and but i think you can toggle it to dark the kindle probably, dark mode so probably. so i guess if people want to read your book in dark mode yeah because it's available on all of the you know you can put it on your ipad or your uh android tablet or your kindle it's yeah. it's got all the formats which is very cool this is why i'm a fan of leanpub is because they're so leanpub takes your markdown and then generates the different epub the whatever format and, and the PDF for printing and the PDF for That's printing, amazing. which was nice. I mean, I've got my fingers crossed that that, that works well, yeah. but I think other people have used it and it's worked and everything. I mean, you, you need to, um, uh, I, I just, you know, wrote a Python script to do that. Cause there's some special stuff you want to do. You want to turn it to all black and white and everything. So, yeah. but it's basically effortless. I do a command and then I generate the PDF and it's so much nicer. Are you going to print it in color? So you get the color? No, no, no. Code no. no. I have seen some books now. Yeah, you see books expensive. do that. Um, yeah, it's expensive. I mean, I guess if there was demand for it, I could do a special version, but <laughs> the I just, color edition. But right? yeah, the color edition would cost probably twice as much as the, yeah. as the black and white edition. So yeah, just I'll just angles. see how this works. and colored ink is you will you have to have expensive. different paper uh, and then you got the you got the colored ink and uh, i mean basically every page is in color so yeah yeah that's a lot that's, a lot. that's yeah that's going to really increase the price of the book and it'd be interesting to know what the price difference is the other thing is if you want the color syntax highlighting you can just get the ebook that's true so it's or pull the code into your into your ide and then yeah i mean there's an on on uh screen version as well yeah that you can just read. well i mean you could just get your github repo and pull it into your ide and read the code that way mm -hmm. yeah 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 well that's exciting congratulations yes, on on getting that done mm -hmm. and uh yeah look forward to buying my copy mm -hmm. and giving you that one star review yeah it's, well you know yeah, it's it's always a risk that's right <laughs> So on the topic of Kotlin, I, yes. next week I'm doing a JetBrains webinar on server-side Kotlin and Google Cloud. I thought you worked for Google. Yeah, server-side Kotlin. It's awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah, so we've been uh, at Google Cloud. I've been doing a lot to help um, build the server-side Kotlin community and mm -hmm. show people how to run Kotlin on Google Cloud and all that. So I'm doing a presentation about this um, next week. So. So what makes server-side different from all other mm -hmm. Kotlin code? What's special about it? N nothing special about it. It's you're just uh, writing Kotlin. You're just writing Kotlin. Yeah. Okay. And uh, some of the frameworks don't support coroutines, um, but most of them do. And so if I'm using Micronaut or I'm using uh, Spring Boot, then I'm just writing... And there's a Kotlin framework too, isn't there? What's it? Oh, Ktor. Ktor, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and I've used I've used all of them. I just used HTTP 4K for the first time today, mm -hmm. which is another Kotlin server framework. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, I I think there's some really exciting things going on there, and there's there's a lot of 
people beginning to adopt Kotlin on the server. Mm. Uh, DoorDash, which just IPO'd, um, their like, their yeah, like backend is all Kotlin. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I just saw a a um, case study from Adobe on their use of Kotlin on the server. Ooh. And so there's a lot of big names now. Uh, I um, I keep running across like kind of more stodgy Java enterprise companies that have moved to Kotlin. And you're like, really? You all moved to Kotlin? Wow. Like, so it's it's happening. So Kotlin's getting some cred on the server then. It is. Yeah, it's really taken off. You know, a lot of people really just see Kotlin as being the Android language. Yeah. Um, but uh, and it certainly has the most adoption on the on mm-hmm. the Android side, but the server side has really taken off for for Kotlin usage. Yep. Oh, and related to this, uh, we haven't officially announced it yet, um, but we just tagged the gRPC Kotlin 1.0 release this week. So and you've been working on that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that was exciting. We'll make the official announcement next week, I think. But hmm. so, yeah. So I could. Call Java from, I mean, call Kotlin from some other language. Yeah, full RPC between kind of mm-hmm. all languages at this point. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's been fun. Um, but yeah, if uh, people want to check out that JetBrains webinar, if they're mm-hmm. interested in server side Kotlin, mm-hmm. go for it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, on the on the Scala front. Uh, so there was recently a, a blog post this week about GraalVM and with GraalVM, so you can ahead of time compile your JVM based applications, Kotlin, Java, Scala, whatever, to native native executables. And, uh, and I've done that and thrown those in Docker containers for running on, on the cloud, whatever. I've experimented with doing um, CLI applications. Command with line interface. Mm-hmm. Command line. Thank you. And uh, the cross compilation is a little tricky still. Like being able, like if I'm running on Linux and want to be able to build the Windows executable, that still is a little little tricky. Um, you, Were you able to do it? You have to do it. My understanding today, you have to do that. So if you want to build a Windows GraalVM executable, you have to do it on Windows. Okay. If you want to build a Mac executable, you have to build it on Mac. If you want to build a Linux executable, you have to build it on Linux. So it's possible, but it um, it requires those other platforms. Mm-hmm. And so you could use GitHub Actions or something like that uh, to, to allow you to... Um, some kind of CI system that has the different different platforms to create those executables. And so that's what some people are doing. Um, but one of the downsides to, to using GraalVM versus like Go or Rust is that the executable sizes were kind of still pretty, pretty large. I mean, nowhere near as large as downloading the JDK and, you know, all the jar files and all that. Um, but uh, this example server application that I have is 12 it's a scala uh, scala server and when i use gravm turn it into an executable it's 12 megs so it's like not too bad but there's this blog post this week about how to how to uh how to compact down those executables there's this tool called like upw or something like that uh i tweeted about it this week if um People want to find out more information, but it compacts those executables down even further. So my 12 meg Scala server, basic Scala server project went from 12 megs, the native executable down to three and a half megs. Uh, and so that was, that now gets into the, into the region of being able to easily distribute. So why would you just like GLI applications? What's the benefit of this thing over just using GZIP? Wouldn't GZIP? Oh, isn't it nice just to be able to like, like, give you an executable you don't have so you're to saying i don't have it. to know about the fact that it's been compressed yeah uh, yeah 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 you just run it it's okay. so it, that's why yeah yeah exactly okay. so so you you of course i i haven't tried to like gzip my 12 meg and see what it yeah and see what be. it turns out to be uh, i'll be i'll do that experiment and see yeah. but but this upw tool it the output of it is still an executable just a much smaller executable so yes. it's kind of wild, like to go from 12 megs to three and a half megs. And the thing just works exactly like it did before. You know? And is that just for Graal VM? No, it, it runs on any executable. 
Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I know it's a, I know it supports Linux because that's what I was using it on. I don't know about. I would guess that it has a Mac version, but I'm not totally mm-hmm. sure. Windows, I'm not sure. But, mm-hmm. but so then I was like, okay, now like CLI applications with Graal VM become a lot uh, more real. You know, like I don't. I so I built this one uh, Graal VM application cli application and it was like it was like 30 or 40 megs or something i was like that's kind of too big to like be like handing people um so it it would be really nice you know to have it down in in under 10 megs or something like that so um so now i know this tool and know that it works on girl vm applications which was Hmm. cool so then a related announcement uh this week was the Zio project, which which Bill and I love, and uh, that's the Z I O, right? Z I O, yep. Okay. Scala Zio, mm-hmm. uh, they announced their new CLI framework mm-hmm. for Zio, and so it's built on top of Zio, so you get all the nice bifunctor IO like wonderfulness of of Zio, but for building CLI applications. So I haven't tried it yet, but I really want to experiment with Zio CLI and Graal VM. And now this UPW tool, uh, and this could be the new way that I build all my CLI applications. Would that work with the Scala scripting stuff? Um, yeah, I think I think you could possibly do it with Scala scripting. I'd have to look into that, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh speaking of scripting stuff, mm-hmm. did I show you my case script thing that I that I did recently? I don't or think used so. Recently, no. So, um, I found this project called KScript, and what it allows you to do is That's the Kotlin scripting stuff. Yeah, right? Kotlin yeah. scripting. Mm-hmm. What it allows you to do is write a KTS file, so foo.kts, and so you don't need the def main or anything. It just you yeah. know it gets it run. It's like a script. But what's amazing about it is you put this like special header up at the top of the KTS file. And then you you mark the KTS file as executable. And so somebody from the command prompt just goes dot slash foo dot KTS, runs the KTS thing and KScript underneath the covers because it's got that little header at the top. It does this magic where it goes and fetches the Kotlin compiler, compiles the, your KScript file, and then runs your KScript file. And so it gives you this experience that's like running an executable KTS file, but obviously like it's, it's not actually running the KTS. It has to go through the compilation step and then run it, but it does all that behind the scenes for you. So it's just, it was a fun little experiment of writing like a CLI with Kotlin scripting. Python. There's a trick you can do that with, well, like windows batch files, shell scripts are better, but, um, since I mostly use Windows, the Windows batch file thing, and you can put this little couple of lines of um, batch code yeah. so that the rest of it is Python. Yeah. The only problem yeah. is yeah, that similar. when you're inside of a, an IDE like um, PyCharm, it doesn't, re- you know, it thinks it's a batch file. Right. It's got the batch file extension and yeah, it's the first yeah. lines. Are, and so you don't get all the nice Python stuff. So Yeah. Yeah, so in the case of case. K script, it's a it is a KTS file, mm-hmm. and so in my IDE, uh, it it, it actually recognizes it. And they did some work um, with KTS with the KTS file format to enable them to have that like magic part at the top, which does the all the bootstrapping and compiling and running, but it still is valid KTS. Mm. Um, like for instance, you need to run it on Unix. You need the uh, shebang. So it's called the first line is the shebang, which mm-hmm. is number sign, exclamation point, you know, slash yes. bin slash bash or whatever. And so, so that I think that that's not typically valid KTS, or at least wasn't in the past. Right. And so they changed. They 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 recognize the shebang. Yeah, that's yeah. So now they're like now KTS can have a shebang at the top, and and it's a valid KTS file. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've they've done some things to to make it make the experience really nice. So I was pretty impressed with KScript. Yeah, cool. we didn't really play with it much because it was too early, and yeah. so I I don't really have any experience with it. But the idea is nice because you know being able to focus 
on it's nice to know lots of languages but it's also nice to be able to not have to be jumping from one language to another yeah when you're within a project yeah yeah so. yeah so that's some exciting stuff um other news this week i guess there was a, a bunch of interesting things that kind of came out this week but one that i saw was that spring boot announced support for cloud events so uh, cloud events is this new cloud native specification for for event packages um, that can be a payload uh, typically over HTTP, but could also go over other protocols as well. And so it's kind of like this agnostic event um, format. So an event has an event type, uh, can have an event um, type a type version. Uh, and so you can say this is a cloud event for, um, uh, let's see, what would be an interesting event, uh, a GitHub pull request or something, right? Like, like, so let's say GitHub pull request, they want to be able to publish a standard event format that then any consumer could hook to and be like, oh, I know how to read a, a Git, GitHub pull request event. And so it has the the name, the version, and then the, the payload body. So just like a standard kind of envelope for sending around events. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is now the, the cloud native, uh, cloud events are a specification under cloud native foundation, cloud native computing foundation. And so there's, there, there's now this, the standard spec for how to define what is an event. And there's a number of things that have now built in support for cloud events. So Knative events, uh, which is built on Kubernetes, like this event um, serverless event system for Kubernetes, it ha its default message format is cloud events. So that was one of the first places where cloud events were used. But now Spring Boot also has support for cloud events. So what's nice is that in Spring Boot, now you say like, like I'm, I have a function that's gonna handle a, a um, GitHub pull request. And that's all you say is like, I'm gonna handle a GitHub pull request. And then you put your logic in there for what to do with the GitHub pull request. But if, that, if Spring Boot gets a cloud event sent to it that is that says, hey, I'm a GitHub pull request event, that comes into Spring Boot, then Spring Boot says, oh, I know how to take that cloud, that thing that's in the format of a cloud event and call your function with the parsed cloud event uh, with the with the GitHub pull request. So I'm assuming that it would want, that it would be, that it's like a registration, a listener kind of a system where you say, I'm interested in that event because otherwise yeah. everybody would be broadcasting events all the time and everything would be so noisy. That's right, yeah. So it is just, you go, <clears throat> You, yeah, Usually these are like the listener pattern. Like, yeah, um, publish subscribe type yes. of mm -hmm. uh, systems is where this often gets mm -hmm. used. And um, in in the case of GitHub, the way that they do events today is through webhooks. So you say you go in and say, all right, I want to listen for pull request events and call this HTTP endpoint with that data every time one of those events happens, and the 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 way that this has been done um, with webhooks, there was no there was no standard unification for the event format for how it got sent. So you would write your own kind of event parser. You invent everything handle. from scratch. Yeah, and and so with cloud events now, now we can have a much better standard way to to uh, have a universal event. Um, things. So the weird thing is, is that this reminds me a lot of the days of soap. I think in some ways this is just re mm. reinventing some of the things that we had with soap. Cause in soap, we had the message envelopes. We had the standard schema event schemas or message schemas. Like what does soap stand for? Something access protocol, something uh, simple object access, access protocol. protocol. There yeah. you go. And yeah. Microsoft invented it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and everybody was doing so because everyone like wanted this this thing that Cloud Events is doing now mm -hmm. to have like this universal way to send stuff around, and mm -hmm. um, obviously that didn't work out like like we planned, and uh, and so now we're trying again with Cloud Events. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how it, see if how it works out this time. <laughs> yeah. See if we, yeah, it'll be interesting to see like like is this is this better? Did we solve some of the problems that kind of kept it from, from being real last time? 
the first time I encountered something like this was um, I wasn't on, I was on the C++ standards committee, but then at the same time, I think it was some of the people on the standards committee, they wanted to start creating CORBA, which is the common object re request broker architecture. Yeah. And they designed, it was, it was basically, I mean, it's kind of what gRPC does, yeah. but it was way more complicated and they didn't have the implementations. They would just have the spec and you had to write your own implementations yeah. to get this thing to work. And it was just so, oh, and to be on the committee, only, only like corporate entities were on the committee because it costs several thousand dollars a year to be on the committee. And yeah. of course, now we wouldn't do yeah. that because you're going, well, we're hoping people will show up and help, help us work on our committee, not you have to have. So right. it was really the power system was just very different. And what they produced was, um, let's say, it didn't catch on. Yeah. But for yeah. a while, it was like XML. Yeah. You know, it was like, yeah. oh, it's, this is the hot yeah. thing. You know, yeah. this is like what everybody's going to use. It'll be yeah. the future. Right. And then after a while. It was go, the future for a little while. It was. It was totally the future. <laughs> yeah. And then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. No, and then it yeah. stopped. Yeah. But try and when when it's the hotness, try and ask questions about it and see what happens. Yeah. You go, is this really the right? Oh, of course it is. Don't don't call out the emperor's new clothes on this one. Yeah. 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 So cloud events are the new hotness for mm -hmm. creating this standard messaging protocol. But you found it reasonable. You you're finding them reasonable. Yes. Cloud events, or um, I guess I don't have enough evidence yet okay. because there's not very many services that are exposing cloud events yet. Mm -hmm. So, like GitHub is still just using their own API format for how they send events, and the I think the whole idea with this is that that if everyone does it, then it's cool, right? Mm -hmm. Like. If all the services start speaking cloud Worked events, in junior high school, <laughs> if everyone starts starts talking cloud events, then then it's useful. But it until everyone is is doing cloud events, it's really hard to judge it and say like this is going to be awesome or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the thing see, Corba had this central committee feel to it. And so that when I see a new standard or anything, I that's one of my sniff tests. Is yeah. Does it smell like you know some opinionated people went into a room, made a bunch of decisions, and now they're handing this thing to you because that's yeah. the way it used to happen. And yeah. I don't think we really put up with that anymore because we don't have to. And Cloud Events was a specification that was probably defined by people who. Uh, who worked on SOAP specifications and Corbis specifications. Which could be good, and, which could be bad. Yeah. You know, it depends. If they come away going, okay, we understand why this didn't work. So let's try again and make it simpler, more straightforward. Yeah. Whatever. Or, I mean, the reason that I think gRPC is catching on as, yeah. as much as it is, is it's like, oh, well, there's the tools, the the um, IDL is quite understandable, you know, and straightforward. Yeah. There are tools to convert it to whatever language I'm using, and then I can use it, and it works. I was like, and it's not overwhelmingly complicated. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and and the libraries that I look at in you know various languages, but a lot of them in Python, you know, it's like here's another try. Uh, it's not working. I can't really say why. And then somebody comes along and does it right. And you go, Oh, I see why it didn't work the other times yeah. because, you know, we weren't thinking about it this way. And now that we are, that's the solution. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's yeah. hard to know. I don't know. I think you get a feeling though. Yeah. When you look at something and play with it a little bit and you kind of go, yeah, this is, yeah. The thing is, you're so good at figuring things like that out that you may have lost your uh, your your critical uh, yeah sense because you just dive in and you figure these things, figure out how to make something work. Yeah, I think the 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 value of having this specification for for cloud events 
is that then you can wire things together. Mm-hmm. And so as an example to our pull request is that, that there's uh, going to be like GitHub is the producer of that message that knows how to like produce the message. But then ideally there's, you know, a bunch of services that I could just plug as consumers of that event. And they all know how to speak that, that protocol to be clear, I am not in any way arguing against specifications. I worked on the C++ standard for eight years. So I, I, it's, it's poor design. It's design that doesn't try things out and get feedback from their potential, you know, users and, and pay attention to see if somebody's eyes are glazing over and this yeah. looks too bad. And you can say, oh, they're never going to use this. We did something wrong. We need to fix it. That's yeah. Yeah. the part that I think yeah. is essential. That's yeah. And then, well, so the, so back to the idea of like, okay, so I've got all these consumers that, that um, take in a, that consume a pull request event that's defined in a cloud event. Um, that they registered for. Yeah. Uh, and then that maybe, and maybe those things can then output a, um, a notification event or something. And then there's other services that can take a notification event and post it into Slack or email it or whatever. And so this, this like idea of being able to build a, a event handling pipeline just with like, like dragging and dropping things together. Like that's the dream, We're that but much we've closer never to no seen code. this actually work. Right. Well, like, no, well, I keep reading articles about low code and no code that it's, it's apparently happening next year and our lives are going to change. So maybe this is what's going to make that happen. Who knows? Personally, I, I guess it's worth thinking about like, like why this hasn't worked in the past. And like generally, like, I think there are some examples where it has worked. Um, but it hasn't ever worked at like the industry wide level that people have said that it is for. It's not like ladder logic for control systems, which everybody still uses to build industrial control systems. And it was like, they made it somehow, I guess, straightforward enough and standard enough and they got everybody using it. And so if you are messing with a control system, even if it's in software, they're still using ladder logic. Yeah. I think that's the hard part is you got to get everybody to use it. And, and it has value when everybody uses it. And so I could see like with cloud events, Mm -hmm. if everyone was using cloud events and cloud events would have a lot of value. Sure. So maybe that's what, like part of what went wrong with soap was that, that, for a variety of reasons, not everybody used it. And so remember the whole idea of UDDI. <laughs> I remember the letters. I don't remember what it did. Universal discovery, something oh. directory information. Right. And then, the, um, and then so the was, idea was that, was that and Java had that thing that Bill Venner's worked on for so long. Genie. Genie. Yes. Wasn't that kind of the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, they were, and it was for connecting printers. (laughs) I asked him once, I go, has anybody ever used any, A, has anybody ever connected a printer this way? He goes, no. He says, is there another example? (laughs) So it's just like, oh, poor Bill. He put so much of his, ah, Billy learned a lot. So with, with UDDI, the whole, the whole like pitch of it was that, there would be this directory of services mm-hmm. and because they were all based on standard message defined message types. Uh, let's say that you, let's say that you need to use a service that's going to like look up a stock price or something. And there's a bunch of different vendors in the UDDI registry that, that have an implementation of that service. And so the whole pitch was that you could you could look up your your service that you want to talk to, but you could also because there was a stand, standard message formatting, you could also dynamically select which provider you wanted to talk to. So like maybe prices are fluctuating for the for the usage cost of a service. It's a marketplace. That's right. It's a marketplace. And if if market provider A is cheaper than market provider B, then I I'm gonna make my calls to market provider A. And if all of a sudden I want to like, 
you know, the price on B goes down and I want to start making calls on B, like it all just keeps working magically uh, because everything's standard message formats. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that obviously we, we never even got close to that. Like just, it's such a, isn't it such a compelling idea? What, yeah. But were they solving the right problem in that case? It's like, and I understand when you set it up, you see these peripheral things. You go, oh, it could be a marketplace. But then somebody starts emphasizing that and people get the wrong idea of what it's for. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it reminds me of when I was much younger, like, you know, somewhere between age six and 20. And I would invent things in my head and it would just come up with this would be so cool. And so I recognize when somebody's done that without like saying, well, this would be so cool. Will anybody actually, does this actually solve solve a a real problem? (laughs) Which was very hard for me because I really got stuck in the cool part. Yeah. Yeah. And the cool doesn't necessarily mean that it's solved a useful problem. No. And if you, and the, and the exciting thing is if you actually do solve a useful problem, then a whole bunch of people get excited about it and start using it. Yeah. Whereas if you just solve a problem that's cool in your head, then, you know, crickets. Yeah. That's very disappointing. Definitely seemed like it was, it was cool, but it didn't really solve any real problems. But the problem is when this stuff is coming out, you don't know. Right. You know, it's the hindsight is well, right. It comes out and you go, maybe that's a real important problem that I just haven't been aware of. Right. That I needed to solve. And then, sometimes a lot of time has to pass and you go, Oh yeah. XML wasn't the be all end all of everything. Like, man, the, yeah, I don't know. The, the number of times that our industry has gotten into a frenzy about things and then totally forgets yeah. that they ever did. I remember in the nineties, we had the AI revolution, oh, yeah. which was totally driven by marketers. You know, yeah. they were just going, yeah, AI, it's magic. It solves all problems. And we're just about to get it. And there was all this money that was going into these AI companies turned out to be a total scam. Yeah. Yeah. And, but at the time you're going, well, and that's why I'm very careful about this low code, no code things, because it smells a lot like the AI revolution, but at the same time, we should get there. I mean, like just in this town, I, I go into businesses and I see, wow, these people need better software, but, um, you know, maybe they're not a big enough business to justify that. And if they could use these tools and put them together and make their own software, you know, I don't think we're going to be out of a job. I think they're going to be coming to us and saying, I have this working and then I have this other piece I need made. Yeah. And so I think it's going to expand the demand for programmers and not reduce it at all. The only place where I've really seen the low code, no code thing work is on Salesforce, Um, at least in modern times. So, so I think actually where it's worked most successfully is with spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Spreadsheets are the ultimate low code, no code. And that is used in, in, as an example. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, so spreadsheets by far the most successful low code, no code environment that that anyone can figure out and, and basically build a mm-hmm. information system in. Uh, then remember, remember Microsoft access. Sure. That was actually a really successful low code, no code database. environment for building data driven systems. There were a bunch of those. I mean, yeah. access was kind of like, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Access was one of that, of, of some others. Well, in um, the original DBase two was yeah. kind of like that. People could learn to program just with that and yeah. get useful results. And yeah. so Salesforce, I think is the new, that mm-hmm. is that it it's targeting the same problem, but it's cloud instead of, you know, like access and all those were either client server or single machine. Um, so Salesforce has actually been successful at that, but the problem with these are always that, that there's no, there's no escape hatch to these. Like, like when you, when you, when you hit the, when you hit the wall of what you can do and what you need to do, you can't, 
you can't do what you need to do in the, that tool, then you're just kind of screwed. Like, okay, start now, learn Python and learn, you know, a programming language, learn dependencies, learn libraries, learn all these, learn HTML and JavaScript and blah, 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 like learn all these things. And, and that's obviously not a good, um, kind of step, step. It's not a stepwise. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as easy as people have made it to learn Python, you're still basically starting from screen. Here you are functional with Excel. And now all of a sudden you're doing, I mean, I, I would say Python is a fairly easy path to that. Like I saw a, a YouTube video just in the past week where this guy was showing how to manipulate Excel spreadsheets. And I initially thought with using Python and I thought, well, surely he's just going to extract the CSV format and manipulate that. But then he says, you know, I, I pull in pandas and then pandas has this open Excel spreadsheet and he's manipulating it in its native format and doing interesting things. And it's like, oh yeah, okay. When you run out of speed there, it is possible to yeah. step into something more powerful. But as yeah. you say, now all of a sudden you're going from, I can mess with a spreadsheet to, I have to know what a program big cliff. is. It is a cliff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's. So I think that's always been my, my beef with the low code, no code things is, is the cliff, the cliff mentality of them. Well, and this is why I, this is why I'm so suspicious of the whole thing. Cause I'm not, I'm seeing articles, but I'm not seeing really examples. Yeah. And so, and, and yet behind all this, it's kind of like what we talk about with the happy path, you know, it's like, we need to get there so that our friend Arvin running his bookstore can say, my bookstore software doesn't work anymore. I will just put together my own. Yeah. And now I've solved my problem and that's not taking anybody's job because there's not enough bookstores out there to run your little company to develop new software for it. It's too hard. That's the problem. We're still developing software is still too hard. Yep. And so we need more people to be able to, we need people without computer science degrees to be able to develop software. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Yep. Yeah. And, and we will, people who do have computer science degrees will still, have more work than they know what to do with. Yeah. It's not a threat. Yeah. The Salesforce has been really successful at kind of the diversity element of, of kind of programmers because of their low code, no code. They've been able to get so many people who were doing like, um, I don't know, let's, uh, like IT kind of work, um, but didn't know how to program building IT systems mm-hmm. on Salesforce. And so this opened them up to a whole new audience of people who are not computer science trained to be able to essentially become programmers in the low code, no code environment. Um, so it's actually been, been really cool what Salesforce has done to like open up the opportunity to a whole new whole new segments of of people and if memory serves they've done pretty well doing that weren't yeah. they able to buy a really big tall building in downtown san francisco they've bought many big tall buildings uh, and they actually just acquired slack this week so they did yeah okay For 22 billion or something like that so wow yeah crazy crazy. so they've been very successful but it's been cool that their that their low code no code thing has has supported that the ability to reach a whole different audience of developers essentially which i think they call them trailblazers oh i see well (laughs) i've been through this salesforce uh marketing (laughs) training Uh uh-huh the mind mind washing that's right yeah yeah so, um, cloud events. I, uh, I I think it's interesting that that progress is happening. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the jury's still out on is this going to give us? Is this going to solve real problems that we have? To your point, I, I'm not sure yet. Sure, sounds like. I mean, this or something like it. It's being able to send events, requests, messages, whatever, to other systems. Seems like 
kind of a lot of what we do now. Yeah. The, yeah. The frontier of the web. So making that work better, whether this one will be the one that does it or because it does seem like to me, flexibility is really important. Mm. You know, it's, it seems like the things that win out are the ones that are clear, but also very flexible. Mm. So if I send you an object and it's got a header on it and you can figure out everything from the object based on the header and decide if you're going to do do something with that whole object or with portions of the object and you can pull them out, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. If it has that kind of flexibility because you know that, you know, just because your system makes up an object, that system isn't necessarily going to be able to do anything useful with it. And they're, you know, they, it might not have been updated for yeah. 10 years. Yep. Yep. So it's got to work under all those conditions. Yeah. And I don't, I wasn't in the room when they were designing it, so I can't say for sure. Yeah. Whether it's, yeah. but it's probably a step forward. Probably. You know? yeah. And then people will try it and go, here's why it worked or here's why it didn't work. Yeah. Here's what we need. Yeah. It's the feedback system that is the important. Yeah. On so many of these things. Yep. So how true. do you do feedback? Hmm. Do you ignore it? Yeah, that is the hard thing, huh? Never seems to work when systems ignore feedback. Yeah. Oh, it's not important feedback. Yeah, maybe it is. Hmm. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then on one last topic for new announcements this week is that Datastax, which is the company behind Cassandra, the open source uh, big data database thing. Uh, and they announced that they're doing Cassandra serverless. So this is a pay for what you use Cassandra service. So, so their traditional model was you would pay some amount of dollars every month to run Cassandra. Um, regardless of how much, regardless you... of how much you okay. use it. Yeah. And so they announced that they're going to do Cassandra serverless, which is super exciting because I've tweeted a number of things recently about how I think what, what, what I really want. And what I think a lot of other people want is the ability to, to take a database, for example, and I want to run it on my laptop via test containers, be able to run that thing on Kubernetes for my production system and be able to run it serverlessly for mm -hmm. um, things that I don't want to run on Cassandra. But portability across all three of those environments to me is is just essential to anything that I use. Mm -hmm. And there was really only one kind of database that fit all of those three portability categories, and it was Kafka. Kafka is not really a database, but you can kind of use it as a database. Mm -hmm. But it was the one thing that I could use in all three of those ways because they have Kafka serverless, they have Kafka operator for Kubernetes, and they have a test container for Kafka. So it allows me to have portability, full portability across all those, which is exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. And so now Datastax adds Cassandra to my list of of uh, services services that are actually portable. In the so way what makes Cassandra work? I mean, what's different about Cassandra from other databases? Like for for me and the yeah. listeners who don't know what Cassandra um, is, I'm, I've only used Cassandra a little bit, so I'm not an expert on it. But what it, it's a distributed database is one of its key things. So it's able to distribute across nodes. And then there's different um, ways that you can uh, that you can define your kind of consensus, uh, what, what you need for consensus uh, with a given piece of data. So- But is it an SQL database or? I'm sure they have a SQL interface for okay. it. I've, I've but, not used SQL on top of it, but okay. I'm sure they I'm sure. But it can. has its own query language then? Uh, I've used, I've just used Java or Scala oh, to okay. talk to it, um, okay. the APIs and, All and right. that's super straightforward, but, hmm. but I'm, I'm sure there's many different ways to talk to it. It's Cassandra has been around now for a long time. So yep. it's, yep, and it's, it it's one of the most used kind of big data data stores. Yeah. The name keeps so I guess up. that like 
basically everything that you would want exists for Cassandra. It's an interesting name to choose for a database. Is this some Greek it god is, or something? It is. Well, the, you know, what, what the Iliad. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Cassandra was, I think she was in Helen's retinue. I'm not sure. Anyway, she was in Troy, you know, when the battle and stuff was going on. The thing about Cassandra was she could see the future. Huh. But no one ever believed her. It didn't matter. Wow. Like everything she saw always came out. And their response would be, wow, you got it right. But we don't believe you can do this. Huh. You know, even though every time you predict something, you get it right. But we still huh. don't believe that, that you're able to predict the future. So I wonder so. if they were thinking about that and data consistency or something mm -hmm. when, when they were coming up with a name for it. I don't mm -hmm. know. Um, but so, so you, when you do a write to Cassandra, you, I think that's when you can specify if you want it to just be like fire and forget, uh, like maybe sensor data. It's like, okay, if you like lose some, or you can say like, I want to guarantee that this write happens to at least one node, or you can say, I want to guarantee that this write happens to a quorum of nodes. And it's all available after I'm done so that I don't have to think about people getting wrong data right yeah. so you have all those choices yeah yeah, yeah so yeah you know, some databases are just like eventual consistency is just how how is just reality mm -hmm. and deal with it whereas i think cassandra gives you more control over mm. the consistency so if you want if you don't want eventual consistency you want and you're willing to pay the price and you're willing to pay the price for waiting it, then, and... then you can do that or if you want something in the middle like mm -hmm. a little bit of eventual consistency mm. or something so, oh that sounds very um thoughtful i so so i'm i'm actually super excited to spend more time with cassandra now that it fits my criteria for being portable mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah so i thought that and was it's available now uh there there is currently a beta for cassandra mm -hmm. serverless it's okay. called um it's like data stacks astro mm -hmm. serverless or something like that so i hope that more more services go the same direction of offering those three things Pay for what you use, serverless, Kubernetes operator, and test container, mm -hmm. and that's that's what I want. That's uh, that for me. That's that's, that's the, your the golden triangle. Path. That's my happy path for nice. for services that I build against. Nice, nice. So, have you um, made any inflammatory tweets this week? Um, always, uh, there was actually some related to this data stacks, Cassandra one, yeah. uh, where I was, I was pointing out that I think, uh, enterprises, they don't want your managed service, like, um, pointing my finger at things like data stacks and other services, cloud services, those sort of things. So what, what I was saying is that I don't think enterprises want your managed service. Enterprises want kubernetes because there's for them they they want much more control flexibility typically um they they probably need to be able to run like on-prem or across different clouds and so kubernetes is the is is the best way to do that today mm. um so they so what enterprises want is kubernetes but they don't want the managed service but what developers in enterprises want they don't want the Kubernetes operator. They don't care about the Kubernetes operator. What they want is the test container so that they can run this thing locally on their on their laptop. And they want the managed service so that they can play with it. They can use it without with only paying for what they use for their little toy projects, you know, because if I'm going to invest time into learning Cassandra, I want to be able to use it on my little pet projects. I want to be able to use it for real projects on Kubernetes like I want to be able to, you know, sure, run it on my so laptop. Much better because you learn that way. Yeah. yeah. And if and if it blocks you from learning, then you're yeah. less likely to use it. Yeah. So I don't know if we've talked a whole lot about test containers. So I'll just give a brief description. Maybe we'll revisit it in a later episode. But test containers take services like Cassandra and packages it into a Docker container and then provides an API to that Docker container, essentially, so that when you run integration tests on your laptop or in your CI environment, 
it will go spin up the Cassandra in this case, Cassandra, there's test containers for all sorts of different services, but the case of Cassandra, it'll go spin up Cassandra for you in Docker on your machine or on your CI environment, then give you the connection information to talk to that Cassandra instance. So in Does your it preload the data and stuff, you can preload okay. data. Yeah. So it's so, kind of like mocking, but you're running it on an actual you're running the actual thing, which okay. is that's what you really want to do for integration tests mm -hmm. is is actually run against the the real thing. Sure. And so the test container, the nice thing about it is it's the same Cassandra that I'm going to use on Kubernetes, the same contain the same Cassandra that I'm going to use in their serverless environment. It's the same. So when I run my integration tests, if those integrations test pass, then I'm pretty darn sure that it's going to work when I'm running on Kubernetes or in the managed serverless environment. Mm -hmm. So that's the benefit is having that like real uh, kind of good guarantees around portability. And so you can tell that by verifying that the container for the deployed ones is the same as the container for the test. I mean, the yep. source code for the exactly. test. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you, so you just say what version you want to use. Mm -hmm. And so you make sure in your test container dependency definition that you specify the same version as you use on your Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, I love test containers and, and it's become an integral part of how I, how I work now and write my integration test. But mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Nice. Oh, and we wanted to wrap up and ask our listeners to send us questions. Yeah, questions. Topics. Yeah, topics that you'd like us to delve into. Not not necessarily, you know, little things, but things which you think we might, you know, yeah. spend a little time talking about. Like, uh, so we have a a uh, what is it? Discord chat room yes. where people can ask their or post yep. their topics that they'd like us mm -hmm. to chat about. I think we put that in all the episode notes. Yes. So, uh, yep. so yeah, go sh share your topics with like us. Like a topic could be the one that I suggested to you, which is, does it ever make sense to extend the interface during inheritance? Right. So that's a, yeah, that's a possible topic. Yeah. So it's something that, you know, doesn't have a clear, answer you could argue both ways yeah so it's kind of philosophical yeah programming problem yeah nice. all right cool. well send all us right. your questions and topics yes. and thanks for listening bye